Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, episode 23. Hello, this is Dan from Novice No Longer, and today is a very, very, very special day. More special than any other day. And the reason is, I can say that I am from Novice No Longer, and I can also say that I am from Trip Expert, which is the startup that I am co founding. And if you are listening to this on the day of its release, which is June 12th, then as of today, you can go to Trip Expert and see exactly what I have been working on. And if you're listening to it later, you can still go on because it's live. It's available for you now. So let me give you the quick pitch and the quick rundown of what I have been working on. So Trip Expert is like Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, but for hotels. So instead of user reviews, so instead of what TripAdvisor does, Trip Expert focuses only on expert reviews. So Fromers, Lonely Planet, New York Times. We've got about 20 expert sources that we pull in. We've got an algorithm that looks at everything and then assigns each hotel a number between 60 and 100 that basically says what the experts agree is how good the hotel is. And the website is just beautiful. I'm so impressed with what our designer has been able to put together. And you go and you look at a hotel listing page and you can see all of the insider information. And we've not only pulled out little snippets from each of the reviews and links to the full text, but we also have little tips. So if there's a certain hotel that says, okay, well, make sure you book on the west side above the 13th floor for the best view, or if they tell you like a secret about how to get a quiet room, we've got that in there. You can see it. You got all the insider information and it is absolutely beautiful. And it's not just a website for you. What we also have for Trip Expert is an API that is open to other developers. So anybody, if you want to actually use our data to make your search better, we got you. And you can use us. And overall, TripExpert is just going to make hotel searching just so much better all over the web. Because I don't know if any of you have actually used TripAdvisor, but it's not really the best. And user reviews just especially for hotels are inherently they they have inherent problems with them even more so than restaurants or anything else uh specifically like with any with any user review a bunch of them are fake and that's rampant um a lot of times a negative review will be impacted by like a trivial experience that probably won't have any impact on your stay at all and really it makes no sense that that should be knocking the hotel down when really it's just a trivial experience and the final thing and the most important is user reviews lack context and what i mean by that is if i go to a hotel in paris and i stay in paris then i'm probably only staying in one hotel. I I have no idea what the competition is offering. So I can't really write a review that should be used to like rank it against other hotels in in a destination when really I have no idea what anybody else is offering. And all of these reviews that you see on there from user reviews have the zero context. So what we've been able to do is perfect that system. And if you go and you go to your favorite destinations, you will see what the experts agree are the best hotels. And it's just really solid. You should check it out. It is Trip Expert, tripexpert.com. And yeah, that's what I've been working on. And I'm super excited that it is live today. And it's just been a ton, a ton, a ton of new experiences for me because I, I feel like everything that I've been working on has been building up to this. It's been like smaller project. It's been apps and then more apps and then kind of 
launching a, a class where I'm teaching and then get a little bit larger with this website and the brand, the Novice No Longer brand, and then the podcast growing to that. And now I'm actually launching like a full-fledged company. And it's just, it's super exciting. And I'm so, so happy that you're here to listen to me talk about this and to kind of share it with me as well. If you go on there and check it out, I would really appreciate it. And like I said, it's been a bunch of firsts for me. And that kind of brings me into the podcast episode today because one of the things that I had to do for the first time when I joined on to co-found Trip Expert was to talk to a lawyer. And I know absolutely nothing about law. But here I was with a stack of papers about the the co-founder terms that I was agreeing to, and I tried to read them and my eyes just crossed. And so I found a lawyer who specialized in startups and entrepreneurs and all of that amazing stuff. And then I had him look it over and I found some really, really good tips. And just having that lawyer look it over, look everything over for me, potentially saved me a lot, a lot of money. And in this podcast, I share exactly what that single element is that I had no idea even existed, but he told me about, I was able to file some paperwork and now I'm in the clear. And so I brought on Matthew Moisen, who is a super, super interesting lawyer who left his firm and the long hours there to launch his own. And he just gives some insights about law for entrepreneurs. So when you need to actually think about talking to a lawyer, when you should actually form an entity, the difference between LLCs and S-Corps and C-Corps and the taxation. And I know, I mean, this this might sound a little bit boring to you, but this is just solid information. And this is, this is the base level of knowledge. If you don't know anything about law, you listen to this. He's really engaging. This conversation is really engaging. And you'll be able to kind of go ahead and move forward whatever with whatever you're doing with a more educated mind frame and just you'll be able to hold conversations that are actually intelligent rather than being like, I have no idea. What Delaware? What are you talking about? And, and we get into all of those details. So I'm going to stop talking now. Please go check out tripexpert.com. I would love to hear what you think. Send me an email. It's Dan with two ends at tripexpert.com. Let me know your thoughts. I'd love some feedback on the website. And I'm going to stop talking now. We're going to jump right in to uh, the interview with Matthew, all about legal stuff that you should know that's actually not dry at all. So here we go, Matthew. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're actually my first person, my first guest on the show who does law and is a lawyer and is in that kind of realm. And it's an area that I know, I used to know very, very little amount, and I still know uh, a little bit about, a little bit more than before, but not that much. But um, it's an area that is it's so vital to entrepreneurs and people building products or people doing this because uh, at one time or another, you're going to need a lawyer and you're going to be, you're ha- going to have to be involved in law. And so I'm, I'm so excited to have you on the show to kind of talk about this kind of stuff and give a, a brief introduction of what entrepreneurs need to know in terms of law. But before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about you. And I always ask my guests kind of their journey and how they got to where they are today. So uh, how did you get to, uh, is it Moisen? Is that how you pronounce it? Moisen Legal? Uh, yeah, yeah, that is. Um, so 
I was at a large firm in Long Island for a number of years, and uh, it was going very well. We did a lot of great deals, and I learned a significant amount. Uh, law is kind of like medicine in that you go to you go to law school, you go to medical school, and you kind of learn the theories behind what it means to be a lawyer or a doctor. But the practice of medicine, the practice of law, is very different than than the theories. And I was mentored by some amazing attorneys, and I learned a ton. And then I got to a point where I was just working too much and, and not enjoying life. And I said to myself, what do I do? Do I go back and get a business degree? Do I you know, do something totally different or, or do I go out on my own? And I realized that it wasn't the law that I didn't like. It was the uh, confines in which I was practicing. And once I had that realization, it was an easy answer. And that answer was, all right, let's, let's open a firm and, and let's be digital and let's be virtual and let's do this uh, in a way that is, is fun and rewarding and actually gives back to the community uh, as opposed to burdens it. And that's kind of the, how Moisen Lee got started. It, it's been a, about a year. And uh, as with any you know, startup or entrepreneurial venture, uh, it has ups and downs, but it's been absolutely amazing. And I wouldn't, uh, it's nice to be able to say that I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't do much differently uh, because right now it's going really well. See, that's really interesting. I think a lot of people, when they think about starting a new company and, or, or a new venture, they think about the really, really long hours. But it's interesting that the way, and I've heard this from multiple people who either were lawyers, are no longer lawyers, or worked at a firm, that the hours are just incredibly long. How, how is it that you were able to kind of branch off on your own and have that be the kind of relief that you needed? Yeah, uh, well, it's not that the hours are, are less. I, I think I work just as much as I used to. The difference is the flexibility. Um, when you're at a firm, you're there for 12 to 15 hours every single day. And, and your job as an associate is to sit and wait. And you're, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the partner to come into your office and say, here's work for you to do. And so you could sit there from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and then at 5.30, you get a project that's going to take you 12 hours, and the expectation is that you work all night and finish it. Um, so I work just as much as I used to. I just do it on my own timing. So if one day I want to get up and go to the gym, I get up and go to the gym. I, I might be at work until 2 or 3 in the morning, but I'm able to schedule in the things that I want to do. And for me, that, that's the big difference. Oh, that's really interesting. I had no idea. I mean, now that you say it, it makes sense because especially when you're first getting started, you, you need to be on call. And like you said, if you get a project at 530, that needs to be done immediately. But I, I didn't even think of it that way in terms of that's why your hours are so long, just because you're on call and then you get the tasks and the tasks take an extraordinary amount of time as well. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's, it, yeah, lawyers work long hours um, more because they're at the whim of the, their clients than because they're actually working for those hours. I mean, when, and it's, listen, the same applies for me in my practice. If I get a call at 530 and a client tells me that they need something the next day, you obviously deliver it. Um, but it's easier to manage when it's a direct communication between you and the client um, when there's different levels where you have the, the client talking to the partner, the partner talking to the senior associate, the senior associate talking to the junior associate, unfortunately, 
a lot falls through the cracks and the, and the times become even more truncated as you go down that line. Whereas with me, my clients speak to me, the, the managing partner of the firm directly. And it kind of cuts a lot of that, uh, leeway or, or, uh, time lag between, uh, those different steps. Now, when you decided to launch Moisen Legal in your own venture, what did you do to kind of make your venture different than what exists out there already? Like, what, what opportunity did you see? I, I see a lot of opportunities in, in the legal field. And, and um, part of that is as an attorney and part of that is as an entrepreneur. Um, I, I think the legal field is changing greatly. Uh, clients and companies no longer are paying for monster law firms on the basis of their names. Clients are hiring specific attorneys and they want those specific attorneys to do specific tasks. So in the past where you'd say, oh, I want to hire, you know, this giant international firm and, and we don't really care what partners or associates are going to work on the tasks we assign. Now you have companies saying, no, we want to hire this specific person and we want this person to work on the task. So I think that creates a lot of opportunity for smaller firms because the name matters a little bit less. Um, so that's one area. The second big area is um, flat fee billing. Um, when lawyers got started, they were really the equivalent of plumbers. And what I mean is when you hire a plumber, you say, I have a problem, my faucet, and I need it fixed. When you hire a lawyer, it should be the same thing. I need to form a corporation. Well, okay, I know how long that's going to take. I should be able to roughly estimate uh, the time, my time commitment and your costs. And therefore, I should be able to predict what the ultimate fee is going to be. Um, traditionally, law firms didn't do that. They just said, hey, this is my hourly rate, and I'll send you a bill at the end of the month. And I think that that really misaligns the lawyer's interest and the client's interest because it's in the lawyer's best interest to take as long as possible. So for me, uh, dealing with entrepreneurs and, and starting startup companies, um, I'm able to provide them with some uh, firm number of, all right, you need to form a corporation. This is what it's going to cost. And, and I think that that uh, ability to... Uh, estimate their costs is very valuable. It's so interesting, and those are two very good points. It's so interesting the the thing that you said about how people are looking for specific individuals to work on a task rather than um, just going with the entire firm or not caring really. And that's something that I noticed too, especially I think happens more with journalism, which I used to do, and I used to write for. Uh, I, I know my listeners know this, but Laptop Magazine and The Verge. And it's interesting how as the proliferation of internet came, so came the, the journalist writers. And what I always tell people if they want to get into journalism is to start their own website. And the reason being is if you can start your own website and just start writing and build up an audience, you're going to get hired by a large company because they're going to want you because you're writing as well as they're going to bring over your audience. And it, it seems to be that we're entering the stage of more individualism and it's so much easier. And it, it's interesting to see how that kind of shift, thanks to the internet, has affected different industries, uh, especially with lawyers, and like you were saying. 
Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point and good analogy. And I think um, it also creates a lot, a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurs because you have uh, this whole body of people that being, you know, these new solo or small practitioners uh, who need services. And so when you're not relying on the firm to provide your billing software, your document management software, you know, even little things like mailing and letterhead, et cetera, um, you look out to who can provide those services. You know, another one, cloud computing. You know, where are my, where are my documents going to be? Are they on the cloud? Are they, for the most part, not in physical files? So I think there's a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs as well to help smaller firms operate efficiently and effectively. Yeah, and that's a fantastic point because I feel like a lot of tech entrepreneurs only look for ideas and opportunities in tech. And there's only a limited number, but there's so many different industries that are not tech-based where there's just so much opportunity because the people that are interested in tech aren't necessarily drawn to that industry. And so it just leaves like a huge gap that's just waiting to be filled. Yeah, yeah, I think you're spot on. So if somebody that's listening to this, they they have an idea or maybe they're working on a product, a, a website, a venture, a company or whatever, how do they know when they need to actually like talk to a lawyer? When, at what point is it, okay, it's time to talk to my lawyer time? That, that's a hard question. And, and I, I hate to be the typical lawyer and say it depends, but I'm going to say it depends. And I, I think the best answer is as soon as possible. The practical answer is once you can afford it. Um, so, why, why is the best answer as soon as, as, soon as possible? I, I think in order to protect your individual liabilities and in order to make sure uh, your work product is your own, you, you need to put certain things in, in place. Um, the, the real benefit of, a, of forming a corporation, whether it's a corporation or an LLC, is that the individual owners are not liable for that entity's uh, ultimate liability. So, you know, for instance, if, if you sign a lease, let's say, and it's, it's the, let's say the lease is between Moisen Legal PC and a landlord. If I default on that lease as Moisen Legal PC, myself, Matthew Moisen, I'm not liable to that landlord. And obviously that's, that's pending a personal guarantee, which is another issue. But that's the big advantage. So if you're operating and you're making money and there are contracts that you're entering into, it is absolutely time to speak to an attorney. If you're at home uh, doing this as a side project or um, you know, some freelance work here and there, it, it might be too early. Um, but I almost think that the answer to that question is usually driven by, can I afford it? And, and not what are the practical implications? Yeah, but I think the question of can I afford it is difficult because it's like I can afford it if I need it, but if it's not necessary, that those funds might be better better put in a different place. So let's say that there's somebody that's listening to this who has a couple of apps in the app store. They just do it under their name. They haven't actually formed an LLC or whatever they're going to form. Um, would that be something that they should do just as somebody with a couple of apps? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
anytime you're really engaging in commerce, uh, it is absolutely time to form an entity. And again, the reason for that is is protecting um, both your intellectual property and your personal assets. So the fear is, is that you have an app on the App Store and for some reason it causes someone harm and that person sues you. Um, if you have an entity established, that person would sue the entity and theoretically the entity is liable. Whereas if that person sues you directly, you've now placed all of your personal assets at risk, meaning your house, your car, you know, your, your 401k, your bank accounts, whatever other um, personal assets you have, you are risking. So again, it's, I think the answer is in part, well, if, if this is someone who doesn't own anything and is more or less um, judgment-proof, or in other words, doesn't have any money, then it, none of this really, really matters so much, really. Um, if this is someone who, who has assets in any capacity that they want to protect, uh, it is a huge issue. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and it's funny because that just makes me think of Flappy Bird. And uh, the reason why the original developer, Dong Wen or whatever his name is, pulled it from the App Store is he was so worried that it was causing people stress and addiction. People were becoming addicted to the game and they were having a really bad time. And that's why he pulled it from the store. Now, I don't think that he was concerned with legal action on that. But right. just in terms of like undue stress caused by an app, like that's... It could be a bunch of different things, but that's well, what I thought of. Well, yeah. Uh, another example is is if you if you have an app on the App Store that is inadvertently infringing on someone else's intellectual property. So let's say, for instance, you have an app um, that's named, you know, Do Tank, and someone else owns the trademark Do Tank, and they they write you a letter saying you you have to stop using that name. So now, if the company was the publisher of that app, the company is going to be liable. Is that a problem? Sure. But the company may or may not have any assets. And more importantly, your individual assets are not at, are not at risk. Again, if, if Dutank and, and you personally publish that app, now you don't have any protection. It's, it's you personally. And I think that that's the big concern. Yeah, that's something that you can do without even realizing it is infringing on people's trademark. And especially when you have people that are so, so-called so patent trolls just going around searching for things that cringe on patents that they own that they're not actively using, then you just it's smart just to be able to protect yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I think, you know, one thing we haven't discussed is, is you know, okay, so what does this really cost? And, and I think if you're a, if you're a freelancer... Um, and you're producing product and you're not looking to pursue venture capital money, this is a relatively straightforward process. You can form uh, a, a corporation for, I don't know, $1,500 or $2,000. You can form a, a LLC for around the same price and at least have a very, very basic structure in place. Um, and I think that that is well worth the investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Novice no longer is an LLC, and it makes me sleep better at night. <laughs> Good to hear. So, okay, you have decided, somebody's listening to this, they've decided, okay, 
I should probably form an entity just to protect myself and what I'm doing. Where does one go to find a lawyer? What kind of lawyer should they look for? Should they just Google like lawyer? Because I, I, it seems like it's such a vast field and there's so many different types of lawyers and I, where, where should somebody start? Yeah, again, a great question. The, the, the first part of the answer is, uh, I'm going to answer actually the second part of the question first, and, and that is there are numerous, numerous types of lawyers. Um, uh, there are specialists, there are generalists, there are, there are, in other words, there are people who do kind of a little bit of everything, and there are people who do um, one specific aspect of law. Um, you're always better off dealing with a specialist um, as, as it, it's someone who is truly an expert in that area. Um, for me, uh, the answer is always speaking to friends and family and saying, hey, who do you know uh, that can help me out with this? Um, for instance, if you have an accountant, I'm sure the accountant knows a lawyer or two. Um, and I think the next part of that is, well, what do I ask the lawyer to see what they do? And I think questions like, um, you know, how many entities have you formed? Um, what type of entity do you recommend and why? Um, questions that target them and force, force the lawyer to display their expertise are really, really important because, for instance, if someone asks me questions about litigation, you know, where to file a complaint, the reality is, is I, I don't know. that That's not the type of law that I practice. And so, while the general public thinks of lawyers, oh, everyone's a lawyer, they can do all these different things. If you come to me for a traffic ticket, I'm going to look, look at you like you got eight heads because I know nothing about criminal court and I don't know nothing about dealing with traffic tickets. So I think finding someone who deals with the area of law that you're, uh, you need help in is, is super important. And for this, uh, it's really corporate, securities, startups, um, entrepreneurial services, something in kind of those realms would would be the right fit. Interesting. Now, is there any specific qualities that might be better for somebody to look for in a lawyer? Um, obviously, communication, answering your questions, that kind of stuff. But like, are are there any qualities that you can be like, okay, well, this person knows what they're talking about, or this is a good person to work with? I think communication is is the is the utmost importance. Um, I, I, but I think the big other big one is, is likability. Um, and I know that sounds a little silly. You're like, why do you care if you like your attorney? You need them to do a job. But at the end of the day, you need someone you can trust and you need someone that you can call and ask questions to and build a relationship with. And I think that you're never going to be able to trust someone that you simply don't like. And I think that that's the value of being likable is almost underestimated in the, in the legal profession. Um, most attorneys have the basic abilities to do what you need if they are specialists in an area. But at the end of the day, if you don't like the person you're dealing with, you're, you're never going to develop a relationship where they understand your business and where um, they're able to provide the, the level of services you need. So for me, the answer is having you know, grabbing a cup of coffee with them, having a conversation with them and saying, you know, is this someone that I can see myself dealing with on a long-term basis? Because it really, honestly, if it's not, it, it's just simply not a good fit and, and you should go, uh, 
you should go speak to someone else. Yeah, it's interesting to me how, like, people, when, often I think when people who don't know law and lawyers think of lawyers, they see this, like, very stuffy. They see it as, like, a field just full of rules and memorization. So people that are in it, like, it, they, I think it's stereotyped. And the people that I found that are all lawyers that I met with have just been all, like, really cool interesting people they have likes and just like li- li- uh, likes and dislikes just like anybody else and you're either going to get along with somebody or you're not and i think that that's a very good point because somebody could be a great lawyer but if you don't get along with them at all you're just going to be making your life miserable and the same goes for any of your employers or business partners that you work with yeah absolutely and again i think you have to you have to just assume if you're dealing with someone who is an expert in a field, that, that the advice you're going to get, no matter who you speak to, is going to be pretty close to the same. So if you take that piece of it out of the equation, the next piece is, okay, now what? And, and being able to converse with someone is, is the next most, important, next most important part. Yeah, that's a perfect point. I didn't even think of that, that because it's in law, there's certain like, well, you should form an entity or you shouldn't. And then what the lawyer does is like forms that entity. That's, that's the same kind of task. So in that particular instance, finding somebody that you get along with is really, really super important. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you, I know that this is like a really, really vast topic to go into, but I think a lot of people get confused with what an LLC is versus uh, a corporation. Um, and I know the basics is like LLC, if it's kind of just you, and if you want to accept like venture capital, it should be a corporation. Is that like the main difference between them? Is there anything else that you should know? Uh, that's the main difference in this context. Um, and again, that's very, very simplified, but the reality is, is that's kind of the answer. Um, so an LLC is obviously stands for a limited liability company. Um, they were, they've been around since the early eighties. So it, it's not a form of entity that's been around forever. Um, the beauty of an LLC in a lot of contexts, kind of other than the venture capital context is, is flexibility. Um, an LLC is governed by what's called an operating agreement. In, in New York, it's called an operating agreement. And that's a contract. And I can restrict transfer of the, of the ownership interests. I can uh, dictate who's the manager. I can uh, have different uh, classes of units. Um, I, can, I can say that there's no required meetings of the members. Um, in other words, I can kind of do whatever fits the particular scenario. Whereas with a corporation, uh, you're much more restricted. Um, the laws say you have to have an annual meeting. The laws say that special meetings are allowed. The law says that um, the rights and preferences among the, mem- among the shareholders um, has to be relatively the same unless you have different classes of ownership. And then within each class, they have to be the same. So, the other, so, so that's from a, a practical legal standpoint. Um, LLCs think flexibility. Corporations think kind of uh, stringent rules that you have to abide by. Um, the other piece of this that's often confused is taxation. So an LLC is typically taxed like a partnership. And what that means is it's, it's quote-unquote pass-through taxation. And, and so the next question is obviously what does that mean? And, and, and that is you're only taxed on an ownership level. 
So the entity itself doesn't pay tax. That's with an LLC. With a corporation, there's two different types of taxation. You either can be taxed as a S corp or a C corp. If you're taxed as an S corp, you're taxed like an LLC, like a partnership. However, um, there are limits as to who, what type of corporation can be taxed as an S corp. Um, you can't have any international owners. Um, you can't have another entity be the owner. Um, there's a there's a number limit on the number of owners. Um, and you only can have one class of ownership. So because of that, many small businesses use the LLC form to get the benefit of the flexibility and the added benefit of the pass-through taxation. Now, the other side of the coin is the C corporation. Um, the C corporation is what venture capital funds look for. And the reason that that is not good as a entrepreneur, um, being a C corp that is, is because it subjects you to double taxation, meaning the corporation pays tax on profits and then you pay taxes on distributions. Um, so every dollar that you make is really taxed twice. Uh, the reason that, well, there's, there's two main reasons that the C corp is favored with, with venture capital funds. The first one is most of their charters require them to invest in C-Corps, so they won't even look at uh, entities that are not C-Corps. And, and I don't want to make anyone nervous. You can certainly convert whatever you are currently operating under into a C-Corp. Um, that just creates a whole other string of issues that is a little too dense for this, this discussion. Um, the second issue is... Uh, because the C-Corp pays tax at the corporate level, um, there's no risk that the owners are going to be liable for tax of the entity. So in other words, if you have an LLC or an S-Corp and that entity earns a profit, you as the owner are liable for taxes even if the LLC or S-Corp does not distribute that amount to you. It's this concept of phantom income. So in other words, let's use numbers. Let's say the LLC makes $1,000 uh, and I am the sole owner. I myself, Matthew Moisen, am responsible to pay income tax on that $1,000 even if the LLC does not pay me anything. A venture capital fund cannot subject itself to that potential liability, which is the other main reason that they will not invest in these alternative vehicles. Interesting. It was funny. As you were talking, I kept coming up with questions and then you kept answering them for me. It was very nice. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> cool. But yeah, that it, when I was, I remember um, like back in the day when I was still, I was still working retail and just dreaming of, I had just discovered entrepreneurship as being like, Hey, People form companies. That means I can form companies. And I kind of had that realization. I, I installed a media wiki. So like, uh, that's the platform that Wikipedia is built on. And I installed it on my own server. And what I did is whenever I learned something new, I would add a page or an entry to my personal uh, media wiki. And I would like fill it out with information. I, won, I had one page on... Uh, law and entities, and I, I, enter, I did a little entry for LLC versus C-Corp versus S-Corp, so I would remember the difference. And I remember there being something about 
the the double taxation or that uh, i remember favoring escort being like ah that makes more sense because you would pay less but at the same time if, if you're looking at like you said taking venture getting money from investors they're going to be looking for the c corp yeah yeah and again it's it's not to say that you can't convert whatever you currently are into a c corp you can definitely do that um the issue there is that there's potentially um, back tax liability. There's potentially other tax liability. So my advice is generally make the decision early on as to uh, what you see in the next five to ten years. And if you have you know, the, the hockey stick growth, as, as the entrepreneurship community calls it, in other words, if you see exponential returns, um, you have a viable business that a, a VC might be interested in. Just just do the C corp, and you know what? If after a little while it doesn't work, you can close it and open up an S corp. Um, the same thing goes with you know you start a, C, a S corp or an LLC. Um, you can certainly close it and, and start a C corp. I, I would just say that early on, making you know, kind of having that realization of what type of business is this where am i looking to go and why is the key driver to which entity makes the most sense Mm -hmm. and one more thing that one more topic i wanted to broach on the topic of uh entities is the magical state of delaware and Delaware, where all of the entities and corporations are formed we don't need to get into the exact details of that but is it isn't it delaware that every every corporation for the most or most corporations are yeah no yeah you bring up a really really good point and that is so let's say you've decided to form the entity and and you've consulted with the attorney the next question is well where in what state should i incorporate and delaware is the most often answer to that question um the reason is is that delaware law favors companies more so than employees um, number one, number two, the Delaware courts are more favorable to companies um, than employees. So, does it make sense to form in Delaware? If you're again, if you're looking to do the venture capital route, absolutely. Um, realistically, does it make much difference in 95% of the time? Uh, no. Um, if you are a service provider and, uh, you know, going back to the app store example, you're loading a couple apps a year to the app store and you're operating in New York uh, out of your apartment or, you know, maybe you own a place, uh, you don't need to do the Delaware route. Um, a lot of the benefits have eroded over the last few years. Um, again, it's not to say that there's no benefit. There certainly is, uh, but I think that this is another issue that is a little bit overplayed um, in the sense that it's not such a simple answer anymore. Um, and most of the laws, including New York's, are most states' laws, I mean, um, are, are, have really gotten up to par and, and provide a lot of the same protections that Delaware otherwise provides. Another one is, you know, a lot of the West Coast companies are using Nevada. They're saying that, you know, Nevada is going to be the new Delaware. And kind of all, this is like one of those things that, that a bunch of lawyers at a cocktail party are going to argue over. 
and again, in reality, I don't know how much of a difference it's really, really going to make to the company other than in a few very specific circumstances. Oh, that's interesting. Because it's kind of become a joke. You, uh, If anybody that's listening watched Silicon Valley, the HBO show, there was at one point where they were talking about incorporating, and the lawyer he was talking to just said, Delaware. And the guy asked why. He's like, no, just Delaware. Seriously, I'm your lawyer. And like, <laughs> that's it. No discussion. And anybody that like knows about entities and knows that everybody incorporates in Delaware, or at least has up until this point, it might be changing, would be like, yep, that's exactly how it is. Yeah, you know, it's again. I think if you're if the if the venture capital route is where you're going, Delaware is definitely the easy answer. Um, in all other circumstances, uh, I would question your expert, and I would say, you know, simply why. And if they just say, well, Delaware, 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 it's like, well, why, 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 why? Um, because you know, for one, if you're forming in Delaware, um, you're subjecting yourself to suit in Delaware, so. If, what I mean is, let's say you're doing business in New York and uh, you're doing business with a, a Delaware business or a business in Florida or a business in Connecticut. One of the issues is, that always presents itself is, well, where can I be sued? Um, if you form in Delaware, you can absolutely be sued in Delaware, which means that you, you might have to go to Delaware to defend yourself. and. You know, again, as a, as a small business, that that might not be the easiest for you to do. Um, as a as a public company, that becomes much of a lesser issue. Yeah, just like you don't want to get a speeding ticket in a different state because then you got to go out there to actually handle that, unless you just pay exactly. it overline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, if you're co-founding a company like you and you have a partner or maybe a team of people. Should each founder kind of contact a lawyer individually to make sure that they have proper representation? Or do most companies kind of have one person who's taking care of the paperwork and then hopefully just has everybody's best, best interests in place? Uh, it really depends on the size of, of what you're getting into. So, and it also depends on how many people you're talking about. So there's always an, an inherent conflict between the quote-unquote majority member and the quote-unquote minority member. So if you're, if you're 50-50 with someone else, um, I think I have a little bit of, a, of less concern about you using one person. If you're, let's say, 75-25, um, now I have a little bit more concern about you using one person because now what's best for the majority owner is not best for the minority owner. Um, for instance, there's, there's concepts of um, drag-along and tag-along rights. So if, if a company is – if someone approaches a company and says, hey, I want to buy you, um, you can put provisions in the document that say that the majority owner – can force the minority owner to sell on certain conditions, and that's called a, that's called the drag along right. So the, the majority is dragging the minority along. So if you're representing the majority, um, you clearly want those rights in the do, in, in the documents. Um, if you're re- representing the minority on the on the other hand, you you might not. Um, the corollary of the drag along is the tag along, um, where a minority member has the right to quote unquote tag along with a majority or um, offer some of its interest for sale along with the majority member. Again, as a minority member, that's something you would want. 
And as a majority member, it's something you are, or, or, or I keep saying member, I, I, I mean member or shareholder or owner. Um, it's something you might not want. So I, I think it depends upon the specifics of, of the deal. Um, and then I, I also think it depends upon where everyone is. And, and if what I mean is if, if there's 5, 10, 15 members or owners and everyone agrees about how these issues are going to play out, then, then that's fine. Um, r- retaining one attorney who's going to put that in, in documented form is, is a non-issue. However, if there's any controversy at all, I, I do think it pays to have separate counsel. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I mean, it just helps to have a lawyer look over anything. When I joined uh, Trip Expert as the co-founder, I, I had all the paperwork to sign and everything. And so I had uh, a lawyer look over it and give me uh, his opinion. And one thing that I didn't even know existed and that he told me about was the 83B election, which he explained to me, and it's crazy how it works, but basically... I filed that and it just saved me a bunch of money potentially in the future. And I'm very thankful for that. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't actually have a lawyer look over anything. Yeah. Um, 83 B is a section of the tax code that allows you to pay taxes on units or shares that are vesting over a period of time. It allows you to pay taxes up front. Um, theoretically when you're getting those, that ownership interest at the onset, the company has less of a value than it is than it's going to, you know, three four years when it vests. So you pay basically taxes on the entire amount that you're going to get up front, and and thereby reducing your ultimate tax liability. Um, I would strongly encourage anyone who's listening to this um, who has vesting a vesting interest um, to consult either a, a tax attorney or a, I'm sorry an accountant or a lawyer uh, to discuss the 83B election because it's very, very important. Yeah, very important. Potentially saved me a bunch of money. Um, So on that topic, are there any other common mistakes that you kind of see first-time entrepreneurs or people getting involved in this make that... uh, Yeah, you know, well, there's there's a lot, and it's somewhat situation-dependent, but I would say the the biggest one that I see is... um, relying on 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 Google. Uh, and what I mean is uh, you can learn a lot on the internet. You know, entrepreneur.com, inc.com, Forbes have some amazing articles about corporate structure and protecting intellectual property and, and you know, A3B election. Um, and it's great. It, it, it definitely allows you to frame the conversation. But a, a lot of these issues... Um, have tax components, have legal components that are much more complex than these articles go into. And I, I think the biggest mistake that I see people making is relying completely on those articles as opposed to speaking someone who's who does this for a living. Um, you know, an example of that would be you form a C-Corp, but you have no intent of getting venture capital money. But you see, you know, everywhere you read, it says form a C-Corp, form a C-Corp, form a C-Corp. So that is going to be, that's going to cost you more money down the line um, than it would have to consult someone uh, on the onset. 
And that answer goes directly into the question that I kind of had to wrap everything up here. Uh, And that was, you kind of already answered it, but if somebody is starting their entrepreneurial journey, are there resources that they should be like looking into or reading or should they just like defer to a lawyer for a lot of that stuff? Because I know for me, if I'm, I like to have a base layer of knowledge. Like when I launched uh, or when I incorporated Novice No Longer and started really focusing on this, I got the book Deduct It. Um, which is all about what you can and cannot deduct from your taxes for small business, because I knew nothing about that. Are are there anything for like entities, legal stuff that people really should look into, or is that kind of unnecessary? No, no, there's definitely, I agree with you a hundred percent. Being educated is very, very important. Um, I think educating yourself before you're speaking to the attorney is, is of the utmost importance because you will be able to test that person and say, Hey, wait a minute. I know what the answer to this is. What do you think about this? Or it gives you some backdrop and it allows you to frame the, frame the discussion in ways you otherwise wouldn't be able to. Um, so I think educating yourself is great. Um, I guess taking it a step further though, it, it's, it's rely, It's the difference between educating yourself and asking more, and using that to ask more questions, versus edging your, educating yourself and relying upon that knowledge as if you're the expert. Um, a couple websites that I, I think are great: um, uh, Field Thoughts and AVC.com. Both, um, I think, of are, are they're they're related, um, and both of those have some great resources on you know, what venture capital is, what uh, employee equity is, what the difference between an LLC and a C-Corp is, you know, what um, this whole concept of corporate form uh, means. Um, so, so those are two good ones I, I would suggest uh, checking out. Um, AVC, is that uh, Fred Wilson's blog? Is that yes. what you're talking about? Okay, cool. Yes, yes. And I think, and Field Thoughts, is, is it Brian Field? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, Feld, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Brad Feld. Yeah, yeah. Feld thoughts. Yeah, um, both of those are great. Awesome. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. If anybody listening here wants to contact you about legal stuff or any other questions they have, where can they find you? Uh, so you can either shoot me an email, which is uh, mjm at moisenlegal dot com. M O I S A N legal. Uh, or free, feel free to check out my website, which is moisenlegal.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been great. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And there you have it. Another episode over. And hopefully that was really enlightening to you. A lot of good information because I really... Look, this this stuff is so interesting and so important to know. If you have enjoyed this, if you found it helpful, your reviews and ratings on iTunes really help me. And I love looking at them. So go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review, and I will love you forever. And until next week, have a good one.